Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we left off last week, where we pick up this week. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 10, let me mention that next Sunday is going to be a special treat. Uh, we have a, something we haven't done in our 18 and a half years as a church. We're going to have a Christmas choir. And the choir has been preparing and practicing, and they're going to sing some songs for us. And so it's going to have a little different flavor next Sunday, but it's going to be just wonderful celebration of Christmas truths. So come to that. Uh, but we will have a sermon as well, and so uh, enjoy the singing, sing along with them, and then we'll preach God's Word, and I'm looking forward to that. Okay, here we are in Hebrews chapter 10, and I know I am given to big statements, but I would say maybe that Hebrews, this portion of Hebrews, more than any other part of the New Testament helps you, helps us fit the Bible together. If we understand what's going on in the middle portion of Hebrews, if we understand what's going on in, in Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, I think we're well on our way to understanding how the whole Bible fits together. So here's our plan this morning. I'm going to read through this passage, kind of chunk at a time, do my best to explain it. And then I want us to make two distinctions. And if we can understand these distinctions between these concepts, I think, I think we'll really, really have a good handle on what's going on in this passage. So let me just give you the outline up front. We're going to distinguish between the law and the gospel, see how that fits together, see how they're distinct but yet harmonious, and then we're going to distinguish between justification and sanctification to see how they're distinct yet harmonious. And you can kind of think of these things as related, law and gospel, as being sort of overarching biblical themes, and then justification and sanctification being personal truths that we all must experience. So with that, let me pray, and then I'm going to begin to read, starting in verse 1 of Hebrews 10. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the first Sunday of December of 2023 that you've ordained. Thank you that after we have heard the word sung, and if we prayed the word and hear the word preached and taught, we can see the word before us as we receive communion on this first Lord's Day of December. May we taste and see that the Lord is good as we have sung. And may you be glorified. May you do your will through this time. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me start reading. Hebrews 10, verse 1. We're going to stop along the way, and I'll do my best to explain the text to you. The writer writes in verse 1, For since the law... Remember, he's in the middle of this argument showing how Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. He's better. He's the fulfillment. In one sense, the Old Testament, the law, we can think of it as this one huge shadow pointing to Jesus. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
So it's part of God's intention that the law was never in, meant to actually bring about reconciliation or redemption or perfection, but mainly, but mainly to bring them to Christ. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, meaning the Old Testament sacrifices of animals, as prescribed by the law in Leviticus, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so just a brief summary. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that the law, think of that as the whole system of the Old Testament and the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the, the sacrificial system, the civil law, it all kind of in one piece together has a purpose. And we're going to talk about how that's picked up in the New Testament and how that relates to the New Covenant. But it's a shadow. It's not the true reality of the good things to come. And what is the good thing to come? It's Christ. And this law has a God-ordained futility to it. It can never make perfect and never was intended to make perfect those who draw near. And he gives two reasons. Because it has to be repeated every year, so therefore there's insufficiency, obviously, in it. And secondly, because it's the blood of bulls and goats and animals. So, so how can that actually finally atone for our sin? That's his argument in these first four verses. So he keeps going. Verse 5. Now here in verses 5 through 10, to give us a little context... The writer of Hebrews is going to quote a psalm, a few verses out of Psalm 40, which is a psalm of David. He's going to quote verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 40, and he is going to, this is hundreds of years before Psalm 40 is written, and it's a psalm that King David wrote about a particular situation that he was in in his life, and what the writer of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to take the words of David in Psalm 40 and he is going to attribute them to Jesus. So in a sense, not in a sense, but in reality, Psalm 40, David's experience is a prophetic picture of Christ's work on the cross. And we're going to see how the writer of Hebrews appropriates that in these next verses. So verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and now he's going to be quoting, he's going to be putting Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8, into the, mouths of Christ, into the mouth of Christ. When Christ came into the world in his incarnation, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So this is the Son speaking to the Father. Then I said, verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above... You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, verse 9, Behold, again this is Jesus speaking to God the Father, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first in order to establish the second. So meaning that Jesus in his incarnation, in his offering for sin on the cross, does away with the administration, with the old covenant, and establishes the second covenant, or the new covenant. Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, so a quick summary before we move on to verses 11 and 14. What's going on with Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8? How does he use it? Well, to understand the context of Psalm 40, it's a psalm of David where David is asking God to deliver him from his enemies. And he is basing his his plea to God on his faithfulness to God. And so David, in the context of Psalm 40, as it was written by David to God, it's David saying, God, please deliver me, and I want you to deliver me because I have been sold out to you. You haven't really wanted mere offerings for sin. You've wanted a whole heart. You've wanted all of me. And even though David didn't do it perfectly, he's basically saying, Lord, I've given you all of myself. And so then what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews does is he takes the words of David, which are an imperfect shadow of Christ, and he appropriates them and he puts them in the mouth of Jesus. And it's as if Jesus is saying, and he is saying these words, God, deliver me from my enemies on behalf of my people, meaning sin, death, and the grave, the sacrifices of animals, the old covenant you haven't truly desired, but you've prepared a body for me, meaning in the incarnation, and so I've come to do your will. I've come to do what you sent me to do, which is to die on the cross, to be the reality of all of the shadows that the old covenant was pointing to, to actually accomplish once and for all salvation. And so he places the words of the psalmist into the mouth of Christ. What's the point of using this instance in the life of David and actually making it a picture, a shadow of Jesus? Well, it's again showing us, he's just reinforcing his point that the sacrificial system of the law in the Old Testament is insufficient. And the Father has always had a plan to prepare a body, meaning Jesus, the Son, and his incarnation. That's what we're celebrating here in this Advent season, that he's prepared a body for the Son. And listen to this, and the Son has come to do the will of the Father. So remember a couple weeks ago, I'm sure you do, we were talking about all of the covenants in the Bible, the covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and then the new covenant. But above all of the covenants that we see in the Bible is this one grand covenant that is often called the covenant of redemption that God makes with himself that God has a plan, the triune God, the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies redemption, the work of the cross. And so we see here that Jesus has come to do the will of the Father in his incarnation, perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection. And we see it hinted at all the way back in Psalm chapter 40. In fact, all the way back at the beginning of Genesis and applied here in Hebrews chapter 10. It's a beautiful weaving together of the whole Bible. It's the Lord's will to bring about Jesus in his incarnation as a man and to die on a cross. In fact, Isaiah 53 verse 10, it's a stunning and beautiful verse that shows us the The plan of God, Isaiah 53, 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is prophetically speaking about Jesus, which is obviously exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, that God the Father has prepared a body for the Son, 
to do the will of the Father to be the final and full sufficient sacrifice on the cross. So if you just a few takeaways before we move on to 11 through 14. Just note the certainty of God's plan of redemption. It's not like God is reacting to anything. He's not reacting to the fall of the world. He's not reacting to sin. So we can and should rest in the sovereignty and providence and plan of God in all things. Jesus says, I have come to do your will. This pagan king, back in Daniel in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar, he says nothing. He's saying of God, nothing can stop your hand. And so when we read verses like this and we see that, that redemption is not God's reaction, but it's God's plan before the foundations of the earth, I think it should cause us to to subordinate every evil, every situation, every current thing going on in the world as underneath God's providence, and we can rest that God, everything works according to God's plan. And then just another takeaway before we move on, I just want you to see the beautiful connectedness of the Bible. See how the Old Testament is full of shadows, this one big, huge arrow pointing to Jesus. Redemption and Christ are woven in the story of the scriptures from beginning to end. And I, wanna, I, want, I point these things out because I want you, when you read your Bibles, to develop a kind of scent for Christ, a scent for redemption. When you're reading the Old Testament, let it be, and it's full of instruction. In fact, Romans, at the end of Romans, it says that the Old Testament was written for our instruction. So there are many, and I don't want to diminish this at all, and we'll pick up on this in a moment. There are many moral lessons for us to, to, to learn in the Old Testament. But, but the foundation of it all is this scent of redemption, God's plan to save a people for himself. And I want you to sniff out as it were, Christ in all of Scripture, to taste and see the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, which leads us to verses 11 through 14. And I think this is the heart, this is, this is the heart of this passage, especially verse, verse 14, which we'll settle on in a moment. And he says now, And every priest, verse 11, stands daily at his service, meaning the old covenant priests. They stand daily to to offer. He goes, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's just a repeating of what he said. There's an insufficiency to it. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now verse 14 is beautiful. We're going to dig into it here in just a moment. But notice the two tenses. The past tense of the has perfected, that's our justification. Those who are being sanctified, we are being in the process of being changed from one degree of glory to another, as Robert read for us from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So what's going on in these verses is a quick summary. The author is reiterating the, the repeating nature of the old covenant sacrifices and their insufficiencies. The, they can't finally take away sins. They're meant to point to something. But Christ, verse 12, comes and he once and for all does what the old covenant 
could not do and was never meant to do. He offers himself as a single sacrifice for sins. And then notice the language, he sits down at the right hand of God, meaning he's done with his work. Whereas the priests in verse 11 are standing daily, continuing to work. Jesus once and for all finishes his work, sits down. Justification is complete. It's finished. There's no more work for God's people to do. But verse 13 says, and verse 13 I think explains so much of the Christian life. Even though our justification if we are in Christ, if we're trusting in him, is done, it's complete, we're reconciled to him, but our redemption is not fully consummated. Look at verse 13 again. It says, we are waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So I think verse 13 encompasses all of human history between the resurrection of Christ and the second return of Christ. So there is, this, there is this defeat of the enemy, and then there is this final consummated application of the defeat of Jesus' enemies once and for all at his return. It's a little bit like the end of World War II, the difference between D-Day and V-Day. There's victory is proclaimed, but it's not fully realized until Jesus returns again. And all of human history between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ is fits, fits into verse 13. We are waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So that explains why even though we have been reconciled to Jesus, if we're in Christ, even though our sins are forgiven and the penalty of sin has been removed, the presence of sin still exists and we have to deal with it until that day. Now, why is this? Well, there's some significant implications. Well, first of all, it explains the continuance of evil and the remaining residue of sin that exists in all of us. It, it explains that. We're, we're in this time. We're waiting until that time, even though Christ has won, the full consummation of his victory will not be applied until he makes his enemies finally and fully a footstool for his feet. And by the way, that's quoting Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. It shows up more often than any other scripture in the New Testament as far as quoting the Old Testament. And he's saying that there's this gap. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means that God, I mean, we could spend a lot of time thinking about that, but at a minimum, it means that God must have purposes for the already not yet aspect of our salvation. So think about this. We're already forgiven. We're already reconciled. Ephesians 1 says that we're, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. But yet we have to wait until that time when, we, when sin is finally purged from our hearts. And so what's the purpose for this, for this gap? Why doesn't God, those of you that grew up like I did in the late 70s and early 80s, and you, you watched, uh, what's the guy with the, the funny ears and Captain Kirk, uh, Star, Star Trek, Star Trek, and they would, remember when they would be down on some planet with the Klingons and it just, beam me up, Scotty, beam me up. Why can't, why after we are reconciled to God, why doesn't he just beam us up as it were? 
Why does he leave us here to still deal with things? Well, God has purposes in that. And I think one of the purposes is to put on display the beauty of redemption even in its not yet consummated state in the lives of individual believers to be a witness of the goodness of God to an onlooking world. So think of it this way. He uses your struggle of sanctification to be a witness to bring about the justification of others. So the Christian life is a kind of witness. It's supposed to be an evangelism parade to an onlooking world. So that's one sense. That's one, one aspect of it. And then I think secondly is just the patience and the mercy of God. He's, he's waiting for that full final consummation because he hasn't brought in the full measure of all those that he's called to himself in eternity past. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Just notice the patience and the mercy of God. Peter says this, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, rep- should reach repentance. So the Lord's not going to lose any of his people. And he's taking his sweet, grace, mercy-filled time. And we may get frustrated with it, but God is slowly, at least from our perspective, moving through history with incredible patience to bring about his sovereign plan, not losing any that he's given to the Son and storing up more and more justification for his punishment of those that over the slowness of the centuries still continue to reject his mercy. Don't be a person that sees the patience and the slowness of God, looks at the span of history and thumbs your nose at that and says, oh, God is not good. No, in God's endurance and patience with wickedness and evil, his goodness and mercy is actually displayed. So let that be a witness to us of the grace of God. Let's keep going, verses 15 through 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after, for after saying, and here he's going to quote again as he's done before in some earlier chapters, he's going to quote Jeremiah 31, which is the prophet Jeremiah, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, speaking about the new covenant to come. So Jeremiah 31, similar to Ezekiel 36, are two instances in the life of Israel in their their rebellion against God, where they're in captivity, where God gives them a promise of hope. He speaks about the new covenant that's coming that then is realized in Jesus. And here, the author of Hebrews is now quoting Jeremiah 31, and he's applying it, obviously, to what Jesus has done in his work. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, Hebrews 10, 15, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there 
there is no longer any offering for sin, meaning where, where there's forgiveness because of what Jesus has done, there no longer needs to be this daily sacrifice for sins that we see in the Old Covenant. So verses 15 through 18 is basically just a repeating, a reminder that the, the Holy Spirit has spoken in the days of old and given witness, and, and he's pointed to this new covenant that's coming. And this new covenant is better than the old because it won't just be written on tablets of stone, but it will be written on the hearts of the people. God will make them alive by his spirit, and he will write his law not on blocks of stone, but on the actual hearts of his people that he has made new. And so that's what I think Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18 is saying, which I think then leads us to consider, I think these are two, two things we need to think about here. I think this passage leads us to distinguish between the law and the gospel. So let's look at that, the distinction between the law and the gospel. So the law, meaning the Mosaic law, this system of how God's people are to live and how to, they are to be made holy on the Day of Atonement. What A major part of this portion of Hebrews is to show us that the law, even though it's holy and perfect and good, it was never intended to make perfect those who draw near. That's what he says at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10. It cannot make perfect those who draw near. Not because something that God gave is somehow inadequate, but because the purposes that God had in the law were never intended to do that. But it is pointing to Jesus, verses 5 through 10 of what we just read, pointing to Jesus who's come to do the Father's will and become, become the perfect sufficient sacrifice that the law was pointing to. So think of it this way. The law in the Old Testament is, is not just God being angry and, and, and meticulous, and now all of a sudden he decides to be gracious in the new. The law had a good and gracious purpose to point people to the gospel. So let me give you these, these points here. I want to help me give you three statements that will help us distinguish between the law and the gospel. First is that the law sends us to the gospel. That's what the point of the law is in the Old Testament. The law is meant to send us to the gospel, which is Christ. You can think of the law really in three aspects. The law shows us God's holiness. It shows us our sinfulness, secondly, in light of God's holiness. And thirdly, it shows us our need for a Savior to do what the law demands that we cannot do. And so the law is meant to be, this is what Galatians says, and in, in, in much of Galatians and Hebrews as well, is that the law is meant to be like a stick. Uh, it's a, a, like a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. So the law sends us to the gospel. It's not meant to send us into ourselves into legalism, that we can uphold the areas of God's law that we uphold better than other people, and we beat them down with our sort of self-focused righteousness. That's legalism. No, the law is meant to humble us all and send us to Christ, send us to the gospel. And then secondly, the gospel then reconciles and enables. The gospel does what the law was never intended to do. 
The gospel, which is the good news of Jesus' incarnation, perfect obedient life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, does what the law could not do but was intended to push us to. So the gospel reconciles, it, it justifies, it brings a new heart, it regenerates a dead uh, heart. That's the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. That's why the new covenant, that's why we say it's better than the old, because it does what the old could never do. And when, it's, when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about Jesus. He does what the law could never do. His death reconciles us. His righteousness on our behalf, not our own. His holiness for our sin, he reconciles us. That's the goodness of the new covenant. But it doesn't only, this is really important, and this is where these things fit together. The gospel doesn't just answer the demands of the law in reconciliation, it enables, it enables the sinner that has now been made alive, it's better than the old because it gives a new heart. And now, remember what the writer said, the law is now written in our hearts and we are enabled to, in ever-increasing measure, live for God. So where we could not obey the demands of the law, we now can because of the gospel. So the gospel reconciles and enables. Can we do it perfectly? No. That's glorification. But can we do it progressively? Fighting with each other? Obeying the Lord? Yes, that's sanctification. And in fact, that's a requirement. That's a consequential requirement in some measure of the new life. That we're not just people who just confess that we believe in Jesus and continue to live like we're dead to him. But the gospel reconciles and enables, and then this is important, and we've been getting at this, is then you got to see this sort of circle here. Then the gospel sends us back to the law of Christ, which is what the Old Testament law was really meant to point, be a shadow of the whole time. So the gospel sends us not to just be forgiven and hold on for salvation and live how we want, but then the gospel, the new heart that we have and the spirit living in us and the reconciliation that we are experiencing because of our justification, then sends us to the law of Christ, which is another way of saying that the gospel sends us to obedience, it sends us to progressive sanctification, it sends us to obeying the Lord, Lord and glorifying him through our rugged, incomplete sanctification, which is why he's left us here to display the surpassing worth of Christ so that our lives would be a witness until he finally comes and fully consummates everything to himself. So what do I mean by the law of Christ? And how does, think about this, how does the law of Christ relate to the Old Testament law? Well, let me give you just a little, a little help, little, a little thought on how to think about those things. In the Old Testament, now this is, this is not necessarily something you can point directly to the Bible, and there's a, a verse that says these things, but it's just a kind of, it's a way that Christians for centuries have wrapped their mind around understanding the law, the complexity of the law in the Old Testament. 
Some Christians would quibble with what I'm about to say. I think we need to sort of speak of this, these things with caveats. I understand that. But I think this is a helpful way of understanding the purposes of the law in the Old Testament. Christians have historically, at least some Christians in our stream, have broken the law up into three categories in the Old Testament. We have the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, you know, these things that we understand or are part of God's, what the heart is all about. Don't lie, cheat, or steal. Don't, don't covet, don't murder. All these things that we are very familiar with. The moral law, it's category one. Category two would be the, the ceremonial or the civil law, the sacrificial system, primarily laid down in Leviticus about the Day of Atonement and all the other sacrifices that Israel should offer to atone for their sins, grain offerings to the Lord. That's the second part. And then the third would be the civil law of Israel. Like if you uh, run over my oxen with your cart, then you know, you, this is kind of how we are to, to live in an uh, orderly society. You have some obligations to me. So, so think of those three categories, the moral law, think of the Ten Commandments, and think of the ceremonial or sacrificial law, the, the, the system of atonement, sac, animal sacrifice, and then thirdly, the civil law. And what the New Testament does is, and I think what's happening here in Hebrews, is it's telling us that these ceremonial and sacrificial aspects of the law are no longer in force. We don't need to do animal sacrifice anymore because those aspects of the law have been fulfilled in Christ. He's done that. And the civil laws to Israel... Although they have principles that we can learn from and help us to govern our society, they're no longer in force either because God is not dealing with one nation. He's dealing with a people, the church. And so although they had their time and place, we, we, we can't look specifically at the civil laws of Israel and draw a one-for-one connection. But what still is in force is the heart of the law. The, the godliness, the, the morality of the law that the New Testament picks up. And then what does the New Testament speak about the law? It calls this law the law of Christ or the law of the Spirit. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning those of us that were guilty by the law, we couldn't uh, uh, obey God perfectly. But for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Paul there is hinting that there's this, 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 tr this application of the law in the New Testament. The reality, the, if, if in a sense the Old Testament law in its, its sacrificial system and its civil law was merely uh, like scaffolding or a rocket booster that is meant to point us to the morality, the heart of the law, which the Ten Commandments we're getting to, which is now the law of the Spirit of life. And we can obey that because it's been written on our hearts and the Spirit now enables us to obey Christ. That's what I think Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 22. Verse 37 through 40, he says, He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to verse 40. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So think of it this way. Think of, think of the Old Testament law as being like a, a rocket booster 
that's shooting to the heart of the new covenant. And some of the boosters, the scaffolding, falls off. That's the, the ceremonial law. It's no longer needed because Christ has fulfilled it. The civil law is no longer needed because we're not a, a, an Old Testament nation. We're a, a new covenant people. But the, the morality, the heart of the law is still in force. And now it's, it's hit God's people. Now it's come, not from the outside, written on stones. But now it's come and it's been written on our hearts. And now the Spirit lives in us. And the good news of the gospel doesn't just send us to being have our sins forgiven and we hold on and obedience isn't important. The consequence, the necessary consequence of the gospel is that it sends us to the heart of the law, what the New Testament calls the law of Christ, the law of the spirit of life, so that we might fulfill the heart of the law and obey God in holiness and be a light to the nations. So what's the application here before we distinguish between justification and sanctification? Well, we need... We need both the grace of the gospel and the imperative, the, the necessity of the command of the heart of the law. If you have law with no gospel, you get legalism. And we see, we see, we see, that, we see that in church circles. We, we even see people that will say they believe the gospel, but there's such an emphasis on obedience in Christ you just barely mentioned. That's like all law and tiny gospel. What does that produce? It produces legalism. I don't know any Christians that would, would, would deny the gospel, but sometimes there can be such an emphasis on, on what we must do and, and, and such a lip service given to what Christ has done that that produces legalism and it binds people down and it's, it's restricting and it kills, sucks the life out of a Christian fellowship. But, conversely, a church that only preaches the grace of the gospel, that doesn't send us to obedience in Christ, that's cheap grace. So you see the two ditches that we're prone to fall off into. All emphasis on what we must do without telling us how Christ has done it for us and in him we can do it becomes legalism. And all emphasis on what Christ has done, and there's grace, 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 no matter what you do, without some measure of imperative and a call to obedience, is cheap grace. But somewhere in there is the middle road of the gospel. The law that sends us to the gospel, and it's healthy gospel truth. Which leads us to distinguishing between justification and sanctification. I'll just end with this, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Look at verse 14. This is beautiful. I think he... Okay, let's do this. In a sense, we've been sort of biblical here, right? We've been up in the clouds, seeing how the Old Testament relates to the New. But now let's bring it down into our lives. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected. That's justification. Once and for all. For all time, those who are being sanctified. That's sanctification. So justification is an act by which God declares sinners righteous, not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done. Because of his obedience, because of his law abiding, because of his penalty paying death on the cross. Because of Christ's obedience, we are justified. That's why Paul says, for our sake, he made him, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin, 
to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ's righteousness on the cross satisfies our sinfulness. Our sin gets imputed to him and his righteousness gets imputed to us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done. And so justification, we are justified not by our works, but by Christ's works. We're justified by faith. And the faith that we receive as part of the new heart is a faith that merely receives and rests on Christ's righteousness. That's all it does. It doesn't bring anything to the table. Our faith is not an obedience that we bring to the table. Think of it this way. Our faith is merely an empty hand that God fills with Christ's righteousness. Our faith is an open mouth that's empty that God pours the righteousness of Christ into our hearts. So we're not saved by the quantitative or obedient nature of our faith. Our faith is merely a channel. It's merely a PVC pipe that God installs that then the righteousness of Christ comes to us. That's justification. But then he says he has perfected as justification for all time. You can't change that. You can never lose your salvation. It's fixed. Those who are being sanctified. So sanctification now, now that you've been justified, you've got a new heart. The gospel, remember, enables us. Sanctification is an act of God and man by which a regenerated, justified believer is progressively transformed, enabled into the image of Christ, and able increasingly to obey. So here's where I want to end on this. Is, well, okay, you're saying, Brad, thankful. thank you for the Sunday school doctrine lesson. How does this apply to me? How does this help me on Tuesday? Well, I'm going to tell you. Your sanctification, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, is necessary, and it's promised. And if you're justified, you not maybe will be sanctified. You are in the process of sanctification. So when we are struggling with sin, when we are tempted to give in, to go back, to draw back, to give up on Christ. I want you to see this truth and the beauty of this truth and the strength of this gospel promise overwhelms the weakness of our feeble hearts and we are renewed with strength to fight sin with the truth of the gospel. That Jesus has done this he has died for my sin. I'm perfected for all time, but I'm still here being sanctified. And there is something going on in you, young man, that is struggling with lust. There is something going on in you, dear sister, whose heart is being racked with shame and guilt. There's something going on in you, according to Hebrews 10, verse 14, which is greater than your feelings. It's greater than your feeble hand. It is the promise of God to finish the work that he started. And seeing that, now this is, this is so critical, seeing that God intends for us to see that and to fight, to come back down into our temptations against the flesh with that truth and to fight it with the greater truth of the promise of God in our hearts and our lives for our sanctification. 
Robert read it for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Beholding the glory of God, seeing all of this, and then coming back into life and remembering that I am being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So Tuesday, I may take, take one step backwards, but Wednesday, I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to take two steps forward because this is true of me. Something truer of me is going on than my, object, my subjective feeling in the moment. That's how it applies to you. So, 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 so put, put that in your trembling hand and let it strengthen you. Well, let's come to the table now. And as we take this bread and this cup, let's, let's see this gospel. When we take this bread, come on, this isn't tradition. We don't get in the habit of doing this rotely or mindlessly or thoughtlessly. Don't do that. But we come and we examine ourselves and we remember the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And we remember that if we're in Christ, and this, this meal that we're about to take is for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, I'm super glad that you're here. But we're about to receive communion, and this is for believers. This is for Christians. And what we're doing is we're remembering that Jesus has died for our justification. And God, if we are believing that, if we're Christians, God instilled in us faith. He gave us an empty hand by which we receive the righteousness of Christ, which is ours. We have been perfected in him. And, and as I take that bread, not only is it a reminder of the cross, but it's a reminder of the new heart, the promise that I feed on Christ and his strength, his righteousness, his spirit, which helps me in my fight against sin right now. And we're strengthened by this meal and we're nourished by this meal. And we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let me pray. Lord, as we come now to take these elements, may our receiving of the bread and the cup this morning serve only to strengthen our understanding of our justification and put steel in our spine and strengthen our hands for our sanctification. I pray that you do that for the good of your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.